welcome to the world of critical care. Today, we're going to be talking about hyperkalemia. Now, hyperkalemia is the potassium electrolyte abnormality that we want to be a little bit more concerned with than when we think about hypokalemia. Now, remember, with hypokalemia, we have most of our potassium about 98% of total body potassium is inside our cells. And so if we're measuring extracellular potassium, specifically the, the serum potassium, if it's a little bit low, we have a lot of potential reserves to have some transcellular shift to be able to restore that potassium. And in fact, our ability to regain our potassium levels is a bit easier. The concern with hyperkalemia is that our potassium curve starts to become a bit exponential as we move out of our normal potassium ranges, because if our serum potassium is elevated, our total body potassium is most likely fairly elevated. And so it's very important to bring it down. Now, in particular, our big fear of hyperkalemia is the risk of fatal arrhythmias. And specifically, we see this often when we start to see evidence of a first-degree heart block. We see kind of a widening of the QRS, the peak T waves. But that can precipitate into pretty severe bradycardia or into more concerning rhythms like VT or VFib. And so with hyperkalemia, we always want to have our, our, our senses a little more tuned in when we see it. We would definitely want to be a little more concerned, but we also want to look at our full clinical situation. So hyperkalemia is officially defined as a potassium greater than 5.5 milliequivalents per liter. Now, severe hyperkalemia is defined as a potassium greater than 6.5 milliequivalents per liter or a potassium that's greater than 5.5, but we also have EKG changes. And that's really important because EKG changes are not always present. There are situations where patients have had potassiums as high as 14, no joke, 14, with zero symptoms, no EKG changes. And there are situations where we have potassiums that are 5.6, 5.7, and the patient is symptomatic and we have EKG changes. And so we need to look at the situation. In particular, some of the things you want to be asking yourself are, is this a chronic or acute situation? And again, chronic hyperkalemia, we're always a little less concerned with than a sudden acute change. Our body tends to be very good at adapting to chronic changes, whereas when we have more acute, sudden changes, our body tends to have more difficulty adapting to. Now, with hyperkalemia, we talked about our big fear, of course, is our EKG changes. And in general, when we're looking at a normal potassium of four, as we progress to a potassium closer into the five to six range, we could potentially start to see some peaked T waves. Now, as we progress closer to eight, approximately, we can see evidence of a first degree heart block. So our PR interval starts increasing beyond that 0 0.20. And then as we start getting into that 10 range, we could see evidence of a complete heart block. And there's 
a fair amount of research that says when you start going over 12, we risk progressing into V-fib. Now, again, every patient and situation is different. But if we see a hyperkalemic lab and we have EKG changes, we always want to be really tuned into that. Some patients will show signs of sort of some diffusion diffuse weakness which can be present though many people are completely asymptomatic now when we start thinking about hyperkalemia we want to think through three potential causes cause one is called pseudo hyperkalemia number two is we have a transcellular shift and number three is that we have renal failure now the first one to think about is pseudo-hyperkalemia. With pseudo-hyperkalemia, we have a lab value that returns. So we've sent our green top lab down. They look at the serum potassium, and it says it's 5.8. But we have significant hemolysis, and that's that call that every nurse hates getting where the lab says, hey, you need to send down a new tube. The problem is when we lyse cells, it releases the potassium inside the cells into our serum, and that causes a false or pseudo-hyperkalemia. And in fact, up to 20% of labs that show hyperkalemia actually are due to pseudo-hyperkalemia because of cell lysis. Now, this is typically mechanical. It's from applying too much suction. And honestly, I think a lot of times this is evidenced in your drawing blood out of like a, a peripheral IV, but this can happen too in central lines where you're where the line might be up against the, the vessel wall and you're having to apply a little more pressure than normal or you just pull the blood back really fast. There's a lot of situations where this can happen. Having a tourniquet on for too long can actually cause this. Even things like excessive fist pumping, all of these can create a situation where you have pseudo hyperkalemia. And so again, the important thing here is if you send a green top down to a lab, they can look for hemolysis. But remember, a point of care cannot look for hemolysis. So if you're using a like a like a gym machine in, in your unit or you're doing like an ISTAP machine, remember, point of care can't tell for hemolysis. So it's really important if you're going to draw those labs. Remember, as a nurse, as a bedside nurse, you're the gatekeeper of important information and information integrity is critical. And so again, if you're using point of care, remember, be really careful how you draw your labs. So we've ruled out pseudo-hyperkalemia, we're going to say, hey, this is a legitimate lab value. So our first question is, is this a transcellular shift, meaning we've had kind of an abnormal shift of potassium inside our cell to outside our cell. Now, we have a few situations that can cause this that are important to understand. The first one is acidosis, so pretty severe acidosis, so our pH is really moving beyond 7.35, so below that. It, a lot of that has to do with proton exchange in the sodium-potassium pump, and it actually has to do with proton competition in that 
metabolic exchange. And so because of that, remember a proton, the H plus is an acid, right? And so because of this, in an acidotic state, we can actually have an increase in our serum potassium. And that's a, a pretty common reason. Now, there is some research that has called this into question. And so I think it's something that's still being explored, but it's something to keep in mind, especially for your septic patients that you're struggling with a little bit of acidosis. Another thing to think about is drug-related shifts in potassium. And this can be medications like Digitalis, which affects the sodium-potassium pump. We could be talking about different medications. We could be looking at things like uh, succinylcholine, so this is one of our common paralytic medications. This actually creates a pretty significant change, about 0.5 milliequivalents per liter in our serum potassium. Now, 0.5 is not critical if your potassium's four and a half, it's only going to go to five, and it only lasts for 15 to 20 minutes, but if you're a patient that was already 5.4, now you're 5.9, 6.0. So it's something to remember. And again, this is affecting our sodium-potassium pump. We could be looking at our beta blockers, right? Our beta blockers can specifically be affecting, again, our serum-potassium. Again, it's a very small change, but it does have an effect. We also have medications that affect our renal excretion of potassium. And so these are talking about medications like ACE inhibitors. We have our ARBs, potassium-sparing diuretics. We have, we have NSAIDs, heparin. There's a host of medications that it can affect the way our kidneys excrete potassium. And so it's something to remember. Again, this is not about a transcellular shift like our beta blockers, succinylcholine, digitalis, etc. But we could be on a medication that is affecting that. Now, in general, all of these things we're talking about usually are not something that is going to create hyperkalemia to a concerning degree. But it could be a a piece of the puzzle, and that's something that we want to think about. Now, another consideration is a situation like blood transfusions. Now, a normal blood transfusion may only have a small amount of potassium in it, but when we're looking at massive transfusion, we could be talking about fairly significant changes in potassium. And so, you know, a normal packed red blood cell might only have like two to three milliequivalents of potassium. But if we have moved into the massive transfusion world where you're getting six, eight, ten units, we could see a pretty big change in our potassium. And it's something to think about. We also have situations where we have like tumor lysis syndrome, rhabdomyolysis. Those also, again, because of the lysis of cells, the release of potassium, those can specifically create hyperkalemia. Again, usually clinically, we can see those like rhabdomyolysis we're usually pretty tuned into. We, we've already seen lab values suggesting this. We also like tumor lysis syndrome. Again, you have usually initiated some sort of chemotherapeutic agent. And so we're we kind of have this in our mind. But remember, there are a wide range of conditions that create this transcellular shift in potassium. Now, 
The next thing we think about is, could this be an excretion issue? And this is specifically where we talk about from a renal perspective. Remember, our kidneys excrete potassium, and specifically that's controlled by aldosterone. So as potassium increases, aldosterone will therefore be released, and it is able to increase our renal excretion of potassium. Now, we talked about medications that affect this, and these medications can alter this. And so ACE inhibitors, we could have potassium-sparing diuretics. We, we talked about NSAIDs, heparin. These medications inhibit this process, and so it could lead to the retention of potassium. But also, we want to think about renal failure, which is incredibly common in the ICU, whether it be acute or chronic this can pretty dramatically affect potassium retention. And so in these situations, we want to realize that even if the patient may not be dialysis dependent, there's a potential that we may in fact need to consider dialysis because we're not going to be able to excrete our potassium like normal. Now, with our treatment of potassium, we can think about the treatment process in a few different ways. One of the first questions to ask, like a lot of things in critical care, what does our patient look like? What's our clinical situation? Do we have severe electrolyte abnormality? Are we, do we have a potassium that is concerningly high, greater than 6.5? Do we have EKG abnormalities? Is the patient symptomatic? Are we having cardiac arrhythmias? If so, then we need to emergently treat the potassium. Conversely, if we are in a situation where we, we are hyperkalemic, but potentially we're not seeing any EKG abnormalities and we're not symptomatic, we can be a bit more passive in the treatment, especially if we s suspect this is a chronic hyperkalemia. Now, we have a few options at our, disposable, at our disposal for how we can treat hyperkalemia. Now, one of the first options is to consider, are we hypovolemic? Now, the reason this is important to remember is if we're diluted, we, we could, or if we're not diluted, so if we're hypovolemic, we would be over-concentrated. So we could potentially create a dilutional effect by increasing our intravascular volume. And so this can be done either if we're looking at a LR infusion or if we're looking at something like isotonic bicarb, which would be great if we're having some severe acidosis and our bicarb's already depleted. We really don't want to do normal saline. Remember, normal saline can actually increase our potassium. It's a bit counterintuitive, but we actually would rather give LR. And so for hypovolemic, we want to think about volume resuscitation. Now, of course, we want to consider our renal status. If we have severe renal failure and we're, we're concerned, maybe we have some heart failure and we're thinking about fluid overload, then that's something we want to consider and keep in mind. Now, we have some measures we can do that are more temporary but can buy us time. One of the first options is creating some transcellular shift. So one of our first ones is like an beta-2 agonist, so like albuterol. This can actually create a bit of a shift inside our shells. We could also be looking at like terbutaline, which is another medication that we could create 
again, we're talking about, you know, maybe like half a milli equivalent per liter shift, but that could be important if our potassium is, you know, five, seven, five, eight, it could bring us down into a much more manageable range. We could also do some insulin and dextrose. Remember, in this process with the transport of dextrose, the way that insulin works as a transporter that creates a potassium shift inside our, our, our cells. Now, some policies will say five units IV insulin to 50 grams of dextrose. I know our facility personally will do 50 grams of of, of D so we'll do 50 grams of dextrose and then we'll do 10 units IV insulin. And I found that to be usually pretty effective. I've seen up to like one milliequivalent per liter shifts in potassium by doing that. Again, that is a temporary measure. Eventually, we will see that efflux of potassium back outside of our cells over the next few hours. But that can buy us time, especially if we're trying to maybe increase our renal excretion or maybe we're trying to buy time to get a dialysis catheter, etc. This is something that does tend to work. Remember, too, if you're on an epinephrine drip, that actually will increase the shift of potassium from the extracellular into the intracellular space. So something, again, just to keep in mind. But again, these are temporary measures. I wanted to mention one thing on the dextrose insulin. You see a lot of people being incredibly cautious about becoming hypoglycemic in that treatment. Um, I have never once seen a patient become hypoglycemic from this, and I have done this hundreds upon hundreds of times. I'm not saying to be cavalier or not concerned about that, but I, I do sometimes think in general, especially with the older population that tends to be in the ICU, many of them being pre-diabetic or diabetic, uh, more often than not, I'm hyperglycemic after doing that. Uh, I think one of the lowest sugars I've ever seen was like 109 or something like that after doing this. It's just, I don't tend to see hypoglycemia as a huge concern doing this treatment. One thing I have noticed, because I tend to do this on patients with arterial lines, is the, the significant bolus of D50. Uh, when you give that amp, I have noticed over time uh, a bit of arterial, on the arterial line, seeing some initial hypotension due to the bolus. I do not know why, but it is something I have noticed. So just a, a little tidbit, if you're giving it and you see a little temporary hypotension, that is something I've noticed when administering D50. Another option is kind of a cardioprotective measure, which is giving calcium, IV calcium. A lot of times you're talking about roughly a gram of calcium chloride or three grams calcium gluconate. The reason this is done is this increases your positive cation charge outside the cardiomyocytes, and this really helps protect them from some of the effects that are higher serum potassium can cause, and this can kind of buy us some time. But remember, this is a pretty short period of time this buys, and so if we're persistently hyperkalemic, then the calcium will need to be readministered if we're in this situation for several hours. Now, these are more temporary measures. Remember, we're just hiding the potassium inside the cells. 
eventually we're going to see a shift back if we cannot remove the potassium. Another option is using diuretics. Now, diuretics, especially our loop diuretics, thi thiazide diuretics. So our loop diuretics, of course, are things like furosemide, bumetidide. We could be talking about our thiazide diuretics, so like our uh, chlorothiazide or metalazone. We could be doing another medication like acetazolamide, etc. And so we can use these medications to help with potassium potassium excretion. Now, the big concern is over diuresis, and specifically, it can be hemodynamic stability. And so something to remember, if you have phenomenal renal function, and we do significant diuresis, we have to look at that in the picture of our hemodynamic stability. Can this patient handle significant diuresis? If not, we may also need to do some volume resuscitation while doing our diuresis. Additionally, when we consider the dosing for this, we want to look at the patient's renal status. If we have some slight renal failure, on occasion, they need kind of a massive diuretic bomb, as it were. They need a huge dose. Talking about doses such as 60 up to 160 milligrams of IV Lasix those kinds of crazy doses for patients. And so sometimes that can actually help avoid emergent dialysis just to see if we can get the, the patient to respond to diuresis. But again, be careful, especially if you have great renal function and you have almost an overdiuresis of volume loss, especially on your post-op patients. It's something I've seen quite often that there may be a need to use then something like LR to provide appropriate volume resuscitation. I'll never forget having this post-op patient. They were just a, just a bypass patient and in the OR, they had great renal function, but after the case finished, their potassium was just still high. It was like 6'2", 6'3", and anesthesia decided to go ahead, and they thought on the echo they maybe looked a little volume up, and so they thought, ah, they maybe could benefit from some diuresis. So they gave him 40 of Lasix. So, you know, only 40 milligrams of Lasix, and you think, okay, no big deal. Bring the patient out. And then... In the first hour, they diuresed 2.9 liters. The next hour, they diuresed 2 liters. And after 3 hours, we had diuresed over 5 liters. And we ended up on massive vasopressors. We ended up having significant hemodynamic instability. We ended up having to end up giving... Two liters of lactated ringers, we gave a liter of albumin. We had to do significant volume resuscitation just to get down the vasopressor requirement. And again, all of that was because of a really exceptional response to the Lasix. But again, at what cost? And so those are things to consider, again, as looking at our clinical situation. Now, the final thing we want to think about is dialysis. When do we look at emergent dialysis? This is the ultimate way to create a significant drop in our potassium. Um, one of the things to think about is our chronic renal failure patients or end-stage renal failure patients. 
especially if we've already tried a diuretic dosing and they've had no response or we're having we're in that situation where we're greater than 6.5 we're seeing ekg changes we're seeing concerning arrhythmias this is where we consider dialysis because we can have a true guaranteed change in our potassium with dialysis a lot of times we're low, we're talking about like a like about one milliequivalent per liter per hour, a two hour dialysis run, you could be talking about dropping potassium two milliequivalents per liter, which is pretty significant. Remember too, with dialysis, even if you're hemodynamically unstable, you can just do dialysis. We don't have to do any volume removal. And so of course, even if you're on vasopressors in the ICU, this can be done and typically pretty effectively and quickly. And that's something as a bedside nurse to think about, especially like I work in a post-operative ICU where we get a lot of renal failure patients that come out of the OR and you already see a pretty elevated potassium. And it's something where you kind of work with your care team to start thinking ahead, especially if it's at the end of the shift, saying, hey, we may need a line put in this patient before everyone leaves at the end of the day. Starting to think ahead, should we go ahead and put in a dialysis catheter? Or it's something where you say, hey, like, you can talk with anesthesia and say, hey, if we're already going to put in a line, should we maybe just go ahead and come out of the OR with a dialysis catheter. Those are things we can be thinking about that can be incredibly valuable. Remember, dialysis catheters, one of the nice things about them is they typically have a pigtail, so they have a third lumen, which can be used as a central line. And of course, our dialysis catheters, if they're packed with heparin, can be unpacked and used for transfusion. And so they tend to be more multi-purpose than I think. Sometimes we, we realize, and so something to be thinking about well, I appreciate listening for this episode, and I hope it's been helpful today thinking about hyperkalemia. The following episode, coming up next week, we're going to start talking about magnesium, and then we're going to move into calcium, but we're going to move next into magnesium because I think it's a really critical electrolyte that has a lot of interplay with potassium.